0: If you've got your Bible with you, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Ezra, chapter 9, and we're going to finish our series today in the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter 9 and 10, in this sort of rarely studied book of Ezra. Uh, We've got a hard passage today, and I'm just going to be up front about that. I'm going to start with two stories, hard passage, hard stories. Story number one. Americus, Georgia, 1950, the Rehoboth Baptist Church, August the 13th to be exact. And the, the precipitating problem in this church on August the 13th is that a guy by the name of Clarence Jordan, Clarence Jordan's Koinonia farm just down the road from Rehoboth Baptist Church in 1950s Georgia, Clarence Jordan had brought a visitor to church and you would think, gold star. He brought a visitor. Not the case. Not the case. He brought an Indian Hindu, a man from India who was a Hindu, named R.C. Sharma. And the problem was not that R.C. Sharma was a Hindu and therefore in need of hearing the gospel, but that he had dark skin. And on August 13th, the congregation voted by two-thirds to expel Clarence, to kick him out, and his wife Florence, along with all of the other members of their farm, this Christian ministry. And it says in Clarence Jordan's biography, the central argument of the resolution was that they had, quote, brought people of other races into the services of Rehoboth Baptist Church. The vote took place. The whole church was hushed into silence And then in Clarence Jordan's biography, it says, Then someone began to sob, and soon others joined. For five minutes, the congregation cried quietly. Then they got up, one by one, and they began to go out the door. And Clarence Jordan and his family was expelled from this congregation. Story number one. Story number two. Also, hard story, exactly 50 years later, in the year 2000, at a place called Bob Jones University, a fundamentalist Christian university in Greenville, South Carolina. It came to light in 2000, after a visit from a presidential candidate, it was an election year, that this Christian university had a rule on the books that banned all interracial dating. Dating. And according to Christianity Today, the Southern School adopted its ban in the 1950s, around the same time as the Clarence Jordan incident. And the policy was instituted after an Asian family threatened to sue the school when their son, who was a student at Bob Jones, nearly married a white girl. And so they instituted a policy that banned all interracial dating. The school lost its tax-exempt status in in 1983 because they had previously uh, banned any African-American students. And they justified this ban on interracial dating by saying that God had created people differently and wanted to keep them separate. Story number two. And if you're like me, you're like, this is kind of awkward. Josh, why are you beginning with these painful stories, these sort of awkward, painful stories? And the reason is that in both cases, story number one and story number two, these these views, these policies that hopefully all of us would look at and say, that's kind of a backward, bigoted uh, way of viewing the world, would be defended by reference to passages like the one that I've been asked to preach on today. This passage would be brought up as justification for this, this sort of mentality, this sort of segregation mindset in Ezra chapter 9 and 10. It would be used to justify that. And so imagine, hypothetically, imagine if there was one passage in an obscure book of the Old Testament that combined some of the most painful hot-button issues in all of the human experience, issues like divorce and marriage, the, the separation, the forced separation of parents and children, racial and religious tensions, and especially over the question of interracial marriages, especially, I just imagine if there was a passage that combined all of those issues. What would you do if you were asked to preach on that passage? Answer, go on vacation. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's what I wanted to do actually. No, and I'm not saying Pastor Rod did that by the way. So if you're listening, Rod, <laughs> there's a reason why churches don't do series on the book of Ezra. It contains some hard passages. It contains some passages that are confusing a bit like the one last week where I read through that long list of names, like a Hebrew phone book and passages that could give offense or that could be misconstrued. And so it raises questions not just about divorce and marriage, this passage, not just about racial or religious tensions, this passage, but deeper questions about what kind of God is this that we encounter in the Old Testament? What is His character? Can we we trust that He is fully good? And so that's why we're studying this passage today, Ezra chapter nine. If you've got your Bible, you can read along with me. It will not be like last week where I do a bait and switch and read the prodigal son story. We're really going to read Ezra chapter nine, beginning in verse one. It says this, after these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. Practice that one. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, Ezra says, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles, and I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. And we'll stop there. A little bit of backstory in the in the book of Ezra. If you're kind of coming new into this series, the book of Ezra is this Old Testament book that details how God led His people out of exile and back to the Father's house. And we said last week that although it may not seem like it, in many ways, it's the story of the prodigal son and how God picked this entire nation up out of the pigsty, so to speak, and brought them back to the father's house. And we said that that in many ways is the story of all of biblical history. And in fact, it's the story of your life that God is in the business of bringing people out of exile and back to the father's house. And so that's what's happening in the book of Ezra. God is bringing people back into this this promised land after a period of exile. And way back in the book of Deuteronomy, there were laws in places like Deuteronomy 23 that were very clear that God's people were not to intermarry with pagan pagan cultures, pagan religions. They weren't to intermarry because if they did, then they would begin to adopt the detestable practices of those cultures. And in fact, that's exactly what happened and it's exactly what led to to the exile in the first place, this descent into pagan idolatry and and things like that. But it raises questions, questions like the ones that were raised in the stories that I began with this morning. What is, what's going on here? And so the first observation that we have to make is this, when we read this difficult passage. And that is that God's command in the Old Testament, God's command on intermarriage for Israel was always about religion and never about race. I'll say it again. God's command on intermarriage was always about religion and it was never about race. And we get a hint of that in Ezra in verse 1 in the passage we just read in chapter 9 because it mentions the, quote, detestable practices that God was worried about his people adopting the detestable practices of all of these pagan nations. And we need to say that these were not minor issues, right? It wasn't like a minor disagreement, like, well, they think it's okay to watch this TV show and we don't, right? Not not, not that level of disagreement, right? It, it, the practices were practices like child sacrifice, practices like the worship of idols, and temple prostitution, and and the violent sort of exploitation of other people. This was the the reason for the exile in the first place, that Israel had become just like the neighbors, so to speak, with regard to these detestable practices. But the key is that this, this command against intermarrying with the pagan nations was always about religion and never about race. And you say, Josh... How do you know that? Because it seems like maybe you're just saying that to back up what we would think of as like something that's culturally acceptable today. Like, how do you know that? And we know that because when we read the Old Testament, we see that Israel's God had always been welcoming of Gentiles, provided that these Gentiles worshipped him and committed themselves fully to the God of Israel. And what we see is that he had even been welcoming of Gentiles who married into the Israelite nation. And we meet these Gentiles throughout the Old Testament, but we often don't notice what's going on. We meet them in in like so imminent and important a person as a guy by the name of Moses. You may have heard of him. The most famous Israelite who had ever lived was married to a Cushite wife, we learn in Numbers, the book of Numbers, that all of us have memorized, of course. Moses was married to a Cushite wife, and the region of Cush is often associated with, it's Cush, it's very, it's close to uh, Ulaga, I don't know if you knew that, but no, it's it's close to Ethiopia, and it's associated with the land of Ethiopia, it's associated with Africa, it's associated with people who have darker black skin, and in Numbers chapter 12, it says that Moses' sister Miriam, by the way, Moses and Miriam are not from Scandinavia. I don't know if you knew that. But so Miriam begins to grumble about Moses' quote, Cushite wife. She gets Aaron involved in the grumbling and the grumbling starts to spread them. Did you hear Moses? He's married to a Cushite. It's by Ulaga, right? Now, why are they grumbling about his Cushite wife? And we get a clue of why they're grumbling in the punishment that God gives to Miriam for her grumbling. You ever glad that God doesn't punish us for our grumbling like he does the Israelites sometimes? What's the punishment? She's struck with leprosy. And it says that she becomes white. White as snow. And so the the Pentateuch, the evangelical Torah scholar, Victor Hamilton says, If the term Cushite implies blackness or an Ethiopian, as it usually does in the Bible, then the story renders the whitened skin of of Miriam a singularly fit punishment for her crime of objecting to Moses's Cushite wife. It's a harsh punishment. God's like, oh, you really care about light skin, do you? And that's, I added that part. It wasn't in the, but that's The the punishment, because God has always been okay with these Gentiles, people of different races and cultures marrying into his people, provided that they were fully committed to Israel's God. We see it with Moses's Cushite wife. We see it with Rahab, a Gentile, Canaanite, often thought to be a harlot in Jericho who becomes a part of God's people a part of the the nation of Israel. We see it with Ruth, who is from one of the nations that was explicitly mentioned in the passage that we just read, the Moabites. Ruth, a Gentile from another race, another culture, she says to Naomi, your God will be my God, your people will be my people, and so she's welcome into God's people as a foremother to David and to the Messiah. Jesus has some Moabite DNA. 23 and me. God had always been okay with that, provided that they were committed to Israel's God. Uriah, the righteous Hittite, another nation mentioned in this passage. He has a Yahwehistic, a Hebrew name because he's committed to Israel's God. And so it's not Uriah who is condemned when we read about him, but David when he edges Uriah out in his marriage to Bathsheba. And so we have all of these proofs as we just read through the Old Testament. It gets even more explicit, even more explicit in the New Testament with passages like Galatians 3, this beautiful passage of unity and oneness in Christ. It says this in verse 26, so in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith for all of you were baptized into Christ and you've clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, his offspring, and your heirs according to the promise. So whatever is going on about this, this thing in Ezra, it is crystal clear that God's command about intermarriage with pagan cultures was always about religion and never about race. And you say, well, okay, great. So what? And I think the so what is important as we read this this passage. And perhaps the first application that we can make from that insight is, is the need for repentance. The need for repentance that sometimes, in some instances... The church has projected our own prejudices on the God of the Bible. Amen? Sometimes, like in the first two stories that I told in this sermon, the church has been guilty of projecting our own prejudices onto the God of the Bible. And if that's the case, then we need to repent. We need to recognize that that's our problem. It's not... It's not God's problem. And I remember hearing an African American pastor talk to me about this, and he said, The problem, Josh, is when you preach on this, when you preach on these passages that bring up racism and all that stuff, nobody thinks th- 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 that's their problem. Right? Very few of us would be like, Oh, yeah, that's me. I'm a racist. That's me. It's, 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 it's not that so much. It's not that we're overtly racist. It's that we are comfortable. Our comfort level is often with people who just look and think and act kind of like we do. I know that's how I am. I'm addicted to comfort in so many ways. And so one of the things that this passage and others like it bring up is a God who wants to pull us out of our comfort and into community. Community with people who aren't always exactly like us. And so that's the first, the first sort of application. The second one is maybe even more important. It's not just a need to repent if we've projected some of our own prejudices onto God. It's the need to take heart and to be encouraged and to rekindle our confidence in the good God of the Old Testament that the God of the Old Testament is the same God that we meet in the New Testament. And again, there's a reason why churches don't preach on Ezra. In many cases, we don't know what to do with the God of the Old Testament. He kind of scares us. And if we're really honest, we have this this thought that like, he doesn't really seem fully good. It seems like there's this Old Testament God who's kind of grumpy and inexplicable, But in the New Testament, good news, he gets happier because of Jesus. (laughs) And so we just sort of camp out over here. And we need to have our confidence rekindled that all of Scripture is God-breathed. And that the God of the Old Testament, we may not always understand him. It was a different culture. It was a different covenant. All of that's true. But he's still a good god And the commands in this passage about intermarriage are about religion, not about race. It is not a a racist God that we encounter in Ezra. I remember last week, you may have been in this service, the kids were up here. They were singing, right? It was great. And they sang this this song that we sang last week in in, um, both services. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. Right, it was great, and we were at staff meeting this week, and Miss Pastor Jared mentioned that one of the moms or one of the parents had come to him and said their kid was just singing that song on repeat all around the house. You're a good. good." There's there's worse things for your kids to be seeing. Come to my house, right? So, like, and so the question when we read Ezra is really simple: Is that true that the God we encounter? In the Old Testament really is a good, good father? And the answer is, it is. This command is meant to protect God's people from these detestable practices, but it is not a racist, segregationist, backward, and bigoted mentality in the heart of God. And that's good news for, for all of us. Second, Second application or second takeaway rather from from this passage. The second one is that when we read the passage carefully, and all of the commentators point this out, that God never tells Ezra explicitly to require the mass divorces and family separations that take place in the passage. God never tells Ezra to require these divorces and family separations. But before we get into that, we need to read the part that actually deals with it. And so if you've got your Bible, Ezra chapter 10, we'll pick up the story in verses one through four. Ezra's dealing with this reality that these leaders have married into these pagan uh, cultures. And it says this, Well Ezra was praying and confessing and weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God. A large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him, and they too wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah, son of Jahil, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, we have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. In other words, the divorce, a written divorce, according to the law. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you, so take courage and do it. And so, the solution that is arrived at in Ezra, because of these marriages with pagan peoples that God had commanded them not to do, but they've already done it, the solution that's arrived at is to enact these sort of mass divorces and to send away the wives and the children of these unions to, to separate these families. And scholars, when they read Ezra, they divide over whether this is something that. God desired Ezra to do, or merely something that Shechaniah suggested and Ezra decided to do. Because it doesn't say in the passage that God wanted this or commanded this in the passage. And so what we get to is an important point in the Bible that we often miss. And it's the difference between descriptive passages that describe what happened and prescriptive passages that say what God wanted to happen or what God commanded to happen. And we can get at this through a sort of silly sort of 4th of July July illustration because we need some levity in this message. So if we said hypothetically that I, Josh, ate 27 hot dogs on the 4th of July, that would be descriptive if it were true. I'm not saying it is or isn't. That's descriptive. I did it. But we're not saying anything necessarily about whether God wanted me to do it. I didn't say God told me to eat 27 hot dogs. Or that you should today, thus saith the Lord, eat 27 hot dogs. That would be prescriptive. And so sometimes in the Bible, we get descriptive passages that just tell us what happened, but they don't say whether God wanted it to happen or not. And so, The Bible scholars, when they study Ezra, they bring this up. And and Mark Roberts, who's a a Bible believing evangelical scholar, says our response to this passage depends on on a crucial distinction between descriptive and prescriptive passages, like the example of David and his sin with Bathsheba. Ezra 10, he says, is descriptive. It tells us what God's people did, but nowhere does God actually speak telling us through a prophet whether their decision was correct. What's interesting is the prophet Malachi writes at around the very same time as Ezra, and he addresses some of these same issues, issues of purity and obedience to the law and marriage and divorce. And Malachi says, the prophet Malachi, the man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Malachi says that, that God hates divorce and that the sanctity of marriage is, is important. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, again, the new covenant, this is a different period, a different covenant. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians is addressing in some ways an analogous situation, not the same, But the issue here is, well, what do you do if you're a Christian and your spouse isn't? What do you do? And Paul says this if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her husband. Paul says essentially, if, if you come to faith and your spouse is not a Christian, but you're married, you don't just automatically divorce because you're now a part of two different religious camps. He says the sanctity of marriage is important. That You, you, never, you might even win your spouse to faith by virtue of your loving, patient example. And so Paul says that. The passage in Ezra doesn't actually tell us that God wanted Ezra to do this. And so I want to pause for a second and say, isn't that how life is sometimes? (laughs) And I'm not talking about forced divorces or, or intermarriage or any of that. I'm just talking about there are situations in life where we're faced with two options that both seem incredibly imperfect. I don't know if you've ever been there. That's where Ezra is. Like, well, this is completely against God's word and it's going to lead us in this path of dissent and to sin. And yet marriage is something God values. And we face situations sometimes where we have these two decisions that both seem imperfect and we would love it if God just piped up at that moment and said, well, do this. But he doesn't always do that. He doesn't always do that. And we face these situations like in the book of Ezra where God never tells Ezra to require these divorces and these family separations. But Ezra makes the best decision. He knows how. And we don't hear what God thought. I said this first service. Aren't you ready for me now to just tell you what I think? What should he have done? It's like, well, it was was not good, but it was to save them from later problems. Or or maybe it was. Wouldn't you like me to just tell you, here's what God thinks. Here's the problem. I'm not God. And I wonder sometimes if the besetting sin of preachers is to forget that. The passage doesn't tell us. The passage tells us what Ezra did in the midst of an incredibly difficult situation. It doesn't tell us what God wanted Ezra to do. And I wonder if part of the point of the Christian life is for you to wrestle with that, to wrestle with the Scriptures that are inspired and truthful, with the Spirit of God that is within us as we face those difficult decisions that I'm not. God. And I can't be that for the church. I do know this, though, and this is something that's obvious in the story and it's obvious for all of us, that it's possible to do something with good intentions and mixed results. Amen? It's possible to do something with really good intentions, the best of intentions, and with mixed results results. And we see that in this incident from the book of Ezra. In chapter 10, beginning in verse 16, we start to get a hint at at these results and and what happens. It says, so the exiles did as was proposed. Ezra the priest selected men who were family heads, one from each family division, and all of them designated by name. On the first day of the 10th month, they sat down to investigate the cases. And by the first day of the first month, they finished dealing with all the men who had married foreign women. And then the book proceeds to name all of these men. It's kind of like a public shaming. I don't know if that's ever happened to you in one way or another. Here's all the people who did this. It lists them out. I won't read that because it sounds kind of like last week's sermon, me reading lots of names. And then it ends with these divorces and these family separations. And then the book of Ezra just stops. And you really want like this poetic, redemptive conclusion, but then all the foreign wives converted and they got remarried, and Jesus was born from there. No, it doesn't say any of that. The book just it just ends, and we get this sense that just like in our lives, sometimes it's possible to do something with the best of intentions, but with really mixed results. To be cast away as a woman. With children in the ancient world was a terrible situation. To be a father who has children with a woman, to be sort of pushed into a divorce and to not live with your children anymore would be a terrible situation. And, and some of you know that, if we're really honest, by experience. That you've been through situations that make the book of Ezra sort of acutely painful and awkward. I had a parishioner last week, she had been reading ahead in Ezra and she was worried. (laughs) What are you going to do with this? And she said, don't be too hard on us who've been through divorce. There was this sense that like, I'm worried to come and get clobbered because I've walked through this painful road and I know this passage deals with divorce and I know there's a sense in which we need to hear one of these verses, maybe more than any other. And it's verse 2 in chapter 10. It says this, but in spite of this, the sin, the breaking of God's law in Deuteronomy 23, but in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. And that's true If you read the Old Testament, in spite of all of the mess and the ambiguity and the sin, there's still hope. And so for some of you, when you read this passage, it's painful because you resonate with Ezra and you resonate with this sense of being forced to make a really hard decision where both of the decisions seem to carry really mixed results. And you need to hear that. In spite of this, there's hope for God's people. In spite of this, there's hope for for you. For some of you, you resonate with the women, the Canaanite women in this story who are sent away and feel a divorced, abandoned, a divorce that you didn't choose, but you had to suffer the consequences of that. And you need to hear this. In spite of all of that, there's hope for Israel, for you, for God's people. Some of you resonate with the children in the story. Children who through zero fault of their own, just being born, what a great crime, right? Are now sent away and experience the repercussions of a divorce that they didn't choose in a culture that was broken before they ever got there. We've all been there. And we need to hear that there's hope still. For some of us, you resonate with the father's. The fathers in this story who've sinned, we've all sinned, and yet now they're separated from seeing or living with their children. These incredibly mixed results that, that result from this, this decision, and you need to know that there's still hope for, for Israel. Why does it just end with this anticlimax? And if you've studied it deeply, you know that in the original sort of canon of the Old Testament, it didn't quite. Because Ezra and Nehemiah were not considered completely separate books. It was like there was a hyphen between them, Ezra, Nehemiah. They were part of this same sort of thing, this unified story, and we pick up in Nehemiah with the rebuilding. The rebuilding after sin and exile, after the divorce, after the tragedy, after the sin, after the bad disease, after the season of, of pain, there's still hope for Israel. And the good news is that God knows what it's like to experience the pain of a divorce, that He didn't choose. The book of Jeremiah describes Yahweh as the divorced God, that this covenant marriage relationship that he had with Israel is broken, and it refers to him as having undergone a divorce. He knows what it's like to be separated from a child because he looks at his son on the cross and his son says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me to watch him die? God knows our pain, not because he's lived exactly the life we have, but because he loves us deeply and he enters into our story to say there's still hope regardless of what we've, what we've been through, regardless of who we resonate with in this story. I think one of the most beautiful ways we feel that is when we receive communion. And communion is this beautiful picture of all of us with all of our differences and all of our imperfections coming to a common table, one common table, as one family who is united with Christ. So we're going to end with that today, but before we do that, let's pray.